family up there and uh, they'll be back again next week but at, and so at this time we have a couple of speakers this morning and first one I'm going to introduce here is Shannon he's from uh, Camp Assurance and he's been here before and I don't know uh, a lot about him I would I would say his last name I just heard it for the first time this morning and I can't pronounce it but um, I did learn a little bit about Camp Assurance here this spring. I got to go up there and help work on, they had a work day up there and that was a lot of fun. And it was kind of good to get to know uh, where the camp is and something about it. But, and, and I met Shannon kind of at that time. But I'll introduce, he can introduce his last name. Okay, I, I'm Shannon Arduzer and my wife Marie and I are area missionaries in Northeast Nebraska and I direct Camp Assurance, a little Bible camp by Belden. And I'm thankful for this church. It's got roots connected to Camp Assurance. Lyle Miller, Orlando Todd are some of the guys who helped get Camp Assurance started back in the day. And we are thankful for your guys' help and support of camp, not the least of which is coming to work days like that, getting our new playground equipment set up, getting the old playground equipment repositioned, and so many other things. Just seeing your group of men bringing young men with you and mentoring them in the process. That's part of the ethos of Camp Assurance. Grant was a summer missionary and um, just going into college, and he's just going to share just a bit about camp. Well... Um, this year was my second year helping out at Camp Assurance, um, and my first year really being like a dorm leader, which was really, really fun. Um, but when you're working with kids, it's kind of like, can be really good, we can feel really strange, it can be like, uh, disappointing, like, um, but uh, I have a verse here, it's from 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, I think that's just kind of like a mission of Camp Assurance, is we know that this is God's word, and it's, it's inspired by him, and that even though we may not see something like happen, you may see something great happen, like, whoa, that was amazing, but we know that it's God's working through it. And we may not see it right away, but man, it can be really, really cool once you just wants to just let God do his work. I think that's really what I've seen this year. Thank you, Grant. You know, it was the second week of ministry this summer. We were doing some in-house vacation Bible school training and going to the library in Belden. And a high school girl from Creighton was on the team and she was in charge of counseling the kids once they heard the story and the invitation to trust Christ. And a little boy whose grandma lives in Belden came back to talk to Jill. He talked to her and asked questions for around 25 minutes. And at the end, he made a profession of faith. About 26 years ago, his dad, a little boy like him, had made a profession of faith in Christ. Um, and I was standing with his grandma, Pat, who actually grew up in this community at the swimming pool later on that summer. And Pat was reflecting on how, while well, her kids... Roston's dad, while they were growing up, um, she doesn't remember a lot because she was trying to kind of suppress memories and to have some things help her do that. But now she is so thankful that Roston has trusted Christ and, and her life has been changed. So it's amazing to have front row seats to what God is doing 
in three generations of that little family in Belden. Um, and Roston came back to camp to get more discipleship and encouragement um, later on that su this summer. Um, I am so thankful for the team of people that God brought together. Camp Assurance is so not any, in any way a one-man show. It is a team of people who, who have different gifts and say, God, can you use me? I want to learn how to share the gospel. I want to come along kids that are a little further behind me in the journey and, and help them get to know Jesus. And that's what I saw this summer. And Caleb is going to preach. Caleb is one of the um, young men who, um, who led the team, one of the, the strong team players that, that helped guide our team of summer missionaries. And when Peter asked me if I'd preach this Sunday, I was like, I know someone who preaches a lot more clearly than myself. He's a little closer to the professors and the, those who have trained him, and his mind might think a little better in terms of some of those intellectual and spiritual things, putting all the different passages together. And he was just not too many feet away from me at the boys' camp out at that point. And I said, Caleb, do you think you'd be willing to preach one more time? Because I've heard Caleb preach twice this summer, and I made sure to be there because it was good and clear, and there was something I could apply from God's Word. And so I am so thankful for Caleb being willing to preach this morning, and I just want to pray for him as he comes up. Jesus, um, you are faithful. You provide. You say that you are faithful to finish the work that you have begun in each of us. And I've seen that work in Caleb over the years and how you continue to help him grow in grace and truth. And, and he applies that to leadership, shepherding, mentoring, and sharing your word. So Lord, I pray that you would powerfully speak through him this morning, that you would be exalted, that your word would just go out and penetrate our hearts for encouragement, conviction, edification, and building up. Lord, thank you so much for this morning to gather as believers. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Um, good morning. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, awesome. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity to come here and preach. Um, your pastor, Peter, he blessed us so greatly at camp this summer. Um, we had a week of staff training, and he and his family came up and stayed in like a camper that week at camp. And he led a bunch of training sessions and was just with us. And whenever we're, I'm talking with my camp friends about this summer and some of the highlights of this summer, Peter always comes up because he gave us a good, solid, theological, biblical foundation um, that we could really... Um, spring off of this summer as we taught kids. Um, and so um, I'm extremely grateful for Peter um, this opportunity to be here to preach at his church, which makes me a little nervous because I look up to him a whole lot. Um, but yeah, so I'm just so thankful to be here today. Um, so today um, we're going to be looking at Exodus 33. Um, so have you guys ever experienced having someone present who was supposed to be there to make something easier or better but ultimately they seem to make it harder or worse. See, their very presence there went from something you were looking forward to to something you now dread. Um, my favorite example of this is when a parent te tries to teach a kid how to drive. Um, the very presence of the parent in the car should be helpful and comforting to the learning driver, um, but in most cases the parent gets really freaked out 
Um, and their presence goes from helpful and comforting to distracting and stressful. Um, a presence meant for good when applied to a specific circumstance ends up being not good, um, at least to the person expecting good to come from that presence. Um, so our passage today in Exodus 33 begins with a situation where God's good presence actually becomes dangerous to his people. Um, and the passage will end with that presence becoming or being made good to his people again. Um, now, this is obviously different than when a parent gets into a vehicle to teach their kid how to drive, um, because God's presence is always good. Um, but that illustration helps us to start thinking about visualizing the effects that presence can have. So the first part of Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you along the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. For if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And so this passage begins with the command from the Lord to depart and then go. The Israelites had been camping at Mount Sinai on their way to Canaan, and God told Moses it was time to go. As verse 1 says, God had promised to give that land of Canaan to the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This should have been this amazing, awesome moment um, for the Israelites as they were finally going to get to go into the land that they had been promised generations back. Um, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God even said, says here that he's going to send an angel to lead the way and drive out the people already living there so the land could be theirs. Um, but the Israelites respond to this word by mourning. And they had good reason to do so. The word that God would not go with them was an extremely troubling word. And the trouble began even before this passage. Before Exodus 33, the Israelites had been freed from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, led into the wilderness, and at Sinai they were given the Ten Commandments and many other instructions to build the tabernacle um, and some other stuff. And so seven of those instruction chapters, Exodus 25 through 31, included very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was supposed to be like sort of a mobile worship space where God could dwell so the people knew that he was present with them. However, while Moses was receiving these instructions on top of the mountain, the Israelites down below became afraid that their God and their leader had actually abandoned them. And so this is where the trouble actually begins in our passages before the passage. They decided they were going to make another God they could worship, an idol. And so God sent Moses down the mountain, both of them very angry, to deal with the idol and the sins of the Israelites. And after that, this command to depart and go is given, and the trouble continues. So right away in verse 1, we can tell something troubling is about to happen as God issues the command to Moses, the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. The Bible is pretty clear that while God uses Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, God was the one who did it. Moses was not the one who brought the Israelites out of, the Israel, out of Egypt. God did it. And so it's intriguing here that God refers to the people as the people that Moses brought out of Egypt. 
Um, he does the same thing when he tells Moses about the idol his people were making in the chapter before that, Nexus 32.7. Um, the way I like to look at that phrase is like when a parent gets home and their spouse says to them, guess what your child did today? And then proceeds to tell them how the kid did something wrong. Um, obviously, the child is still their child, but they don't really want to take ownership of them at that moment. Um, in Exodus 32.7 on the mountain, God is saying to Moses, guess what your people did today? And in Exodus 33.1, God is telling Moses to take the people you brought out of Egypt with you. Right off the bat, this does not really look like God wants to take ownership of his people at the moment. And then he says, I'm going to fulfill my promise, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. God knew the toll his presence would take on his people. One of the main ways that God is understood in the Old Testament is, is as the ultimate life giver. Whether in creating everything, um, giving land to landless men, children to barren women, or providing laws which pr protect life, already at this point in the Bible, it's only the second book in, God has been firmly established as the ultimate life giver. And this God also desires to be present among his creation. So he makes life and is the life giver, but he also wants to be present among this life that he's created. But what happens when his creation chooses life taking, chooses sin, chooses to disobey his life giving will and commandments when his people sin against him and each other? God's presence is radically life giving. And when it rests on a people who continue to choose life taking and sin, this passage tells us it is all consuming. God's presence works radically to restore life-giving in a way which must often deal with or even remove the life-takers within it. God recognized this when he gave the command for the Israelites to move on into the land, and the Israelites realized this as well upon hearing God's command. They removed their ornaments. This would have been like their fancy jewelry and all their other fancy accessories, and the understanding was that they were to be worn during times of prosperity and were never to be worn during times of mourning. And so they had just been brought out of Egypt. And actually, as they came out of Egypt, God gave them instructions to basically ask their Egyptian neighbors for a bunch of gold. And the Egyptian neighbors brought it. And so they were wearing all this fancy jewelry and because it was the sign that God had caused them to prosper. God was with them. God had fulfilled his promises. And so they took him off because the understanding was if you're in this period of mourning, you would never be wearing all this fancy stuff that make it look like you're in a time of like, Prosperity. No, they're like, this is, this is God's given us all of this, but to wear it right now would be just not good. They recognize the reality of their sin, that they were enemies of God's very presence who dwelt among them, and as a result, they were mourning. And God affirmed their mourning in verse 5 by commanding them to take off their ornaments. And in verse 6, we realize that the, those people actually never put their ornaments back on. Uh, we may not be Israelites today, but we actually all have the same reason to mourn as they did. In Romans 5.10, at the very start, um, we'll get to the second half of it later. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. So we are all naturally enemies of God and his life-giving presence. Just like the Israelites, we, we struggle with choosing sin against God and against each other every chance we get. Um, God calls his people a stiff-necked people. Um, and I think we're often very stiff-necked too. It's stiff-necked. It's part of our sin nature. Um, I was exploring that adjective because I'm like, that's kind of a weird thing to say um, about a people. Um, but just think about if your neck is stiff, you're not going to like turn 
it to any way. And so basically their, their necks were stiff. They were set in their own way and they weren't going to turn to God. They were stiff-necked. They were stuck in the way that they were in, the way of life-taking. And God's like, you're stuck in this way. Even if I cry out to you, I call out to you, he, he's like, you're not going to turn to me. <laughs> you're stiff-necked. And see, we all have that struggle too. Um, and this, I mean, this is really interesting because it makes it so it's not just about doing all the right things. <laughs> like, it's not like God was upset here just because they made a mistake. They made several mistakes <laughs> We have this sin nature. He's upset here because even though they made this mistake, they're not turning to him. They're stiff-necked. They're set in their ways and not his way. And so it's not like this passage is saying you have to do everything exactly right. Otherwise, God doesn't love you and doesn't want to be with you. No, it's not saying that. It's saying God wants you to turn to him. And God recognized that his people were stiff-necked. They were not in a position to turn back to him, even though he loved them. And so... Um, but we have this problem, too, with our sin nature. Um, we all get tempted to and often choose sin. Um, and we have the choice to turn back to God or to try to stay set in our ways, to be stiff-necked. Um, and this makes us an enemy of God's radically life-giving presence. Um, we cannot be in his presence by our own action and tendencies. Um, and because we cannot be in his presence, we can't be with him in heaven. Um, that's, I mean, that's the bad news of the gospel. Um, we have the same problem as the Israelites here today. Because of our sin, God says, I will not, I cannot go with you. And at that point, which we must all stand before the presence of God in the judgment day, we'll be consumed because of our sin. Um, we'll be in God's presence as life takers. And his life-giving presence is going to, you know, consume us. So... That would be kind of like, well, that's kind of a not fun place to end. But we're only six verses into the chapter. Um, so fortunately for the Israelites and fortunately for us, the story doesn't end there. And that's why most of us, I hope, are sitting here today in this church. It is because this story is the story of God's life-giving and redeeming presence that does not end there. God makes a way for his presence to be among his people. And so Exodus 33 continues, verses 7 through 11, saying, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. All right, so this part of the passage seems kind of random to me. Um, God says he can't go with his people, and they're mourning. Everyone's freaking out. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have like this short commercial break to talk about the tent of meeting. Um, it's kind of this, you've got this plot, you've got the, the trouble that arrives in standard narratives. And then usually the trouble builds up until it resolves and there's some sort of resolution. Otherwise it's not a good story. You know, none of us want to read a story that's just, it's just trouble. That's not a story. That's just complaining. And so usually you're like, all right, we're going to get the resolution. But then it like just breaks off. <laughs> in the middle and we're like all right short commercial break and then we'll get back to the show 
Um, but this commercial break um, is actually really interesting. It's nothing in the Bible is in there for a random reason. It's in there to speak to us. And so it's actually really important. So this little commercial break, this part of the chapter, shows that God makes a way to be present with his people, um, even if access to his presence is limited. And so even before they had built the tabernacle, um, they had a place where they could see that their God was present among them. And so it was no wonder they mourned when they found out God would not be going with them. Um, in this passage, it tells us that every time they saw God's presence among them talking to Moses, they would all stop and worship. Moses experienced like a fuller kind of God's presence, both in his conversations with God on the top of Mount Sinai and in his conversations with God in the tent of meeting. And it says he spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now we will find out at the end of this chapter that it's not actually possible for Moses to see God's like face face. Um, but the whole point of that line is to establish that Moses had a special relationship with God, which would allow him to do the things he's going to do at the end of this chapter. Um, so in this commercial break of Exodus 33, 7 through 11, we've learned that God desires to be present with his people. He makes a way through this tent of meeting to be present with his people. And this presence of God being among his, among his people is super important to them. <laughs> like it's like this huge event. They constantly be worshiping whenever Moses would go there. And so God was present and it was a big deal. And so when all of a sudden God's not going to be present, it's a big deal. And... And also the commercial break also lets us know that Moses had a special relationship with God, which will make us a little less jaw-dropping when we read the rest of this passage and listen to the way Moses actually talks to God. Um, and so in terms of narrative structure, we return back to the regular scheduled programming, um, back to the normal plot, um, to see what will become of this people who might have to continue on without their God present. How is this trouble in the narrative going to resolve? Um, and how is this trouble going to resolve for us? And so um, in the rest of this chapter, Exodus 33, 12 through 23, um, Moses said to the Lord, say, you, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your very going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For I have found, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will pro proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you'll so you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. All right, end of the chapter. Um, I love these new these Old Testament texts because you read that and you're like half of that stuff is really weird to me. Like I just don't understand why that's in there, and I love that because it makes it fun to explore and kind of try to jump into a culture that's over four thousand years ago 
and figure out what this meant for that people <laughs> to see what that would mean for us today. And so, um, yeah, this is just an interesting way to end, resolve this conflict. You're like, does this actually resolve? Um, but it, it does. Um, in my opinion, it seems like Moses makes a really weird argument here. Um, for me, the best part of the argument seems to happen after God already says that he'll go with them. Um, but Moses isn't done talking. He's still arguing. Um, and so verses 12 and 13 do not actually seem to make much of an argument here. Um, but I think if we can um, rearticulate what Moses is saying a bit, um, it's actually a pretty good argument. And so as we previously established, the Lord had said, I will send an angel before you, but I will not go with you. And Moses's response then really goes like this. Lord, you say you will send an angel, but I do not know him. But I do know you, Lord, and you know me. I do not want to know someone new. I want to get to know you more. Oh, and also consider that this nation is your people. And that's, that's the argument that he makes for God being present. Um, and that's definitely an interesting argument. <laughs> Most of it's very personal, <laughs> um, which kind of makes sense because while the Israelites were sinning, were turning against God, where was Moses? Moses was up on a mountain talking with God, spending time with God. And he's like, why are you leaving me? I was up there. <laughs> but also don't leave your people also. Like that's kind of the end. <laughs> he's like, don't leave your people. But also I've been with you this whole time. Um, and it's a really interesting argument. Um, it's also kind of awesome that at the very end where it's like oh and consider that this nation too is your people it's kind of a callback to the very beginning with the whole um you know god saying bring the people you brought out of egypt with you you know he's kind of taking disownership and moses is like consider that this nation is your people he's throwing it back at it. he's like this is your kid too like and and it works and the lord says my presence will go with you and i will give you rest um but moses isn't done talking yet <laughs> Um, and he continues saying probably the one verse that really got me digging into this passage. He says, Lord, if you're not going with us, we are not going. How will people know you favor us if you don't go with us? Is it not in your very going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And so if you're trying to figure out what made the people so upset about moving on without God's presence, Moses hit the nail right on the head there. For the people of Israel, their entire identity was to be found in having a God who went with them, who was with them. And losing God's presence was equivalent to losing their very identity. So the Lord said, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. And you think, yay, the story is over, happy ending, it resolves. But Moses is still talking. Um, and he says, show me your glory. Um, now, a lot of translations add please at the beginning of this request, including the one I read before. Um, but technically in the Hebrew, this is merely an imperative. Um, I think we often try to soften it a bit by adding please because we can't imagine the audacity of someone who would give God a command to show him his glory. Um, but that's why the commercial break was a little important and knowing the previously read stuff that, that Moses spoke to God as if he's just his friend. So Moses was not going to pull any punches. He had a reverence and a respect and a love for God. But at the same time, he was going to, if he had a request, if he had a problem with something, he's going to talk to God about it. And he's not going to hold back. <laughs> Show me your glory. And, and so Moses gives imperatives to God actually throughout the entire Pentateuch. Um, often it's, Lord, don't give up on us, please. Um, but the please we add in there. Um, so yeah, so Moses 
has this desire to know and experience God's presence fully. Um, And he's willing to give an imperative command to God to get it. Um, And God answers, I will, which is even maybe even more surprising um, than Moses asking God to show him his glory. Um, Then he reminds Moses who he is by saying his divine name, um, which usually shows up in our Bible as Lord in all caps, um, because the Hebrews and certain Old Testament scholars um, do not like to use the divine name if we can out of reverence. Um, because there's, there's a complicated dynamic there. Because God has given us his personal name. And so it's like the fact is we have a personal God who loves us and we have a relationship with. But at the same time, we also want to respect that. And so it's kind of complicated. But he's like, he's like, he's talking to Moses and he's like, remember, I am, this is my name. Um, and then he says they hope proclaim his name. And then he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And this statement actually has two levels. Um, First, it's actually a restatement of the divine name um, of God. Um, Because the first time, way back in Exodus 3, Moses asks God, who who are you? And God responds, I am who I am. Um, And that's what the divine name actually is. It's just Hebrew for he is who he is. Um, Normally, it's translated this way, um, but really most scholars would translate it more as, I will be who I will be, as God would be with the people, but not under the control of the people. And so this points to the second level of the statement, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so God wanted to make it clear that he was not doing any of this because Moses had commanded him to. God was going to go with him and his people, he was, but he was, God was going to go who he was going to go with, and God was going to show his glory to who he was going to show his glory to. In this case, it was going to be Moses, and Moses did ask, but God was doing it because God wanted to do it. Um, and finally, this chapter ends with specific instructions on how Moses would be able to see God's glory. Um, even Moses could not see God's full glory. Even Moses could not experience God's fullness of presence. <laughs> because even Moses, even though he was faithful and he's turning towards God, He still has that sin nature. He still has that life-taking tendency um, that if he were to see God full, like be fully in the presence of God, it would consume him. And so God doesn't want that. Um, And so God still makes a way, though, this is important, for Moses to experience at least a little bit of his presence. And this is the third time in the chapter where God makes a way for his presence to be among his people. First, he did so in the commercial break part of the narrative, um, which talked about the tent of meeting. Second, even though he didn't really lay out a plan in this chapter for how he would be present among his people, he promised to do so um, and give them rest. And this actually comes comes in the form of building the tabernacle where he would dwell, which happens from chapter 35 to the end of the book of Exodus. Um, And finally, he made a way for his servant and friend Moses to see at least a part of his full presence or glory. And so this chapter may be talking about the Israelites who were alive a long time ago, um, and it may have some weird stuff that we don't really get if we just read it, you know, just for fun. Um, but this story teaches us something about our God who is still the same and something about us as God's people who still tend to interact with him in a similar way. And so one thing to remember about narratives or stories in the Bible, though, is that God is always the ultimate hero. Every story teaches us something about God And this story teaches us that God makes a way for his presence to dwell among us. Going back to Romans 5.10, but reading all of it this time. 
Um, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so even as our sin makes us enemies of God and separates us from his presence, he made a way for us to be present with him in Jesus. Even as we are a stiff-necked people and tend to turn to anything but God, he made a way for us to be present with him in Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate act of God's presence as God would become a man and would walk among us. Um, Philippians 2, 6-8, talking about Jesus, says, who, through he was in the, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus humbled himself, became man to be present with us, which is crazy. Like, like that's mind-blowing in itself, that he would empty himself. Um, my dad, who's preaching in another church right now, is preaching an entire sermon on just how Jesus emptied himself. It's just this verse. And so I thought it was important to put this in here, that Jesus was willing to empty himself to be present with us. But that wasn't, the big, that wasn't even the big picture, because he wasn't here just to be temporarily present. Jesus was here to provide us with more than that. We were reconciled to God through his death and saved by his resurrection. And as a result of that, we can be in God's presence forever in heaven. Um, one of the main things we know about heaven, um, heaven's kind of a fun subject to talk about, especially at camp, because that's usually the thing kids have the most questions on. Is there like, is it going to be this in heaven? Is it going to be like this, like this, like this? Um, and while the Bible does talk about heaven, it's not always very specific or clear on a lot of the things that they would ask. And it's like, my question to them is always the most important thing about heaven, at least for me, is that God's going to be there and I get to be there. I get to be present with the Lord and all that other little detail question stuff that doesn't even in the moment when you're there, that's none of that other stuff's going to matter anymore because you're in the presence of God, fully in the presence of God. And so we have, we can even have a taste of his presence now which is crazy. Like, like, we're looking forward to the kingdom, you know, where we get to be fully present with God. God gets to be fully present with us. But he's even given us a, a taste of it now um, as the Holy Spirit is given to us as we believe in G on Jesus to save our sins. Um, and so as 2 Corinthians 5, 5 says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the Spirit is not only God present with us now, but it's also a guarantee that we get to be fully present with God in eternity. And so this becomes, kind of like the people of Israel, this becomes our new hope and our new identity as a people whom God has reconciled to himself so he can dwell among us. But really it's so that we can dwell among him. As it says in Exodus thirty-three sixteen, is it not in your very going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So today you can know, even though that one time in Exodus 33, God said to his people, I will not go with you. That our God always makes a way for his presence to be among us. And that way is Jesus. Thank you.